0: Thank y'all so very much for this morning, and we're going to do a little furniture rearranging. So if you're looking for your stuff, Ashley, it will be somewhere up here. Let's put this one over here, and this one over here. Anyways, maybe I won't knock it over. I did find out last week that this isn't a magical microphone after all. I thought it'd make my voice pretty, but apparently my voice is still my voice. So you're just going to be stuck with it. I tried. What can I say? I tried. So today we're going to start in a little mini-series through the book of James. Uh, if you don't know where James is at, you may have to consult your uh, table of contents in the front of your Bible. But it's a little small epistle towards the end of the New Testament. James is an interesting little book, mainly because it has uh, an aura of controversy around it. It actually almost didn't make the cut as being a book of the Bible. There's a lot of reasons behind it. Uh, Over the years, it has been abused, it has been misused, it has been misunderstood, it has been applied to the prosperity gospel, it's been applied to the verse of the prosperity gospel, it's been used over here, over there, a little bit everywhere. So what about this book makes it so Controversial. Well, some of it is in its simplicity. James, the half-brother of Jesus, or brother of Jesus, however you want to contribute the genealogy and gene pool and all that kind of stuff, uh, was most likely the author. Now, when we talk about books of the Bible, sometimes we know for sure, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we know who wrote it, sometimes we know when they wrote it, sometimes we kind of know, sometimes we kind of don't. Well, this is one of those books. The author identifies himself as James. It could be James, the brother of Jesus. That's what most people think. Tradition tells us that. It could be another James that rose to prominence in uh, the early church. James was a fairly common name, and it still is today. Uh, it just could have been somebody who thought James was a cool person, so they wrote crediting him by writing in his name. That was kind of a way to cite a paper in antiquity. Some people like that. Um, Does it matter? Well, yeah, it kind of helps you put yourself in the position. I tend to lean that it was James, the brother of Jesus, the traditional view of this book. So when did he write it? Well, it depends. Do you think James was writing against the theology of Paul, of this kind of faith without works kind of thing? Was this kind of against Paul? Well, maybe. But if you don't think it was against Paul and it rose up independently, it could have been one of the earliest books of the New Testament. So what do we do with it? Well, you read it and you try to put it into practice. James, the brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus. Father Joseph Carpenter, so they probably worked in carpentry together. All right, so have you ever been on a job site working with people, blue-collar trade? Raise your hand. How many guys have worked job sites? So we got some in the back, we got some over there. I mean, even farmers kind of do this, you know, your farm hands. You're working with the sweat of your brow, your muscles in this. Um, do you just do your work all day and never carry on a conversation? No. You know, we have a president that says, oh, that's locker room talk, referring to the kind of talk that happens in some of these situations. I've never really been on a job site that talks leaned towards that direction. Maybe I was just kind of weird and my brothers were weird and that kind of stuff. But when I sweated and worked with my brothers, we'd end up into some kind of politics, religion, and these odd little conversations on a construction site. Now, most of you probably will think that maybe he's unique. But no, it's not. I've been on different construction sites walking in, and philosophy, meaning of life, these kind of conversations come up. As strange as it may be, um, when you're working, you start talking. And when you know people, you kind of get into these strange little deep conversations about different topics. So I kind of tend to think Jesus and James, as they were growing up, working on the co- uh, contractor site, commercial, you know, these kind of things, building houses and, and buildings and this kind of stuff, they, they at time started talking about what they knew. They knew the Old Testament Scripture. They would talk about Proverbs and these kind of things. Book of Deuteronomy, one of Jesus' favorite that he liked to quote. But we know that James, this Jewish almost scholar, wrote a book that is steeped in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, but is also steeped in the Jesus tradition. What am I talking about, the Jesus tradition? I'm talking about what Jesus taught, namely the Sermon of the Mount. That's kind of a core of Jesus' teaching. Not necessarily what all he did, but the teachings. Now, if you read Jesus' work, his teachings, he leans on the Torah. He comes to kind of correct the misunderstandings of the Torah, to fulfill the law. And so we are going to look at part of the first chapter. The first chapter introduces a lot of topics, but we're going to narrow in on verse 22 in chapter 1. And we're going to look at this little section. It tells us this. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And for he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. Sounds too simple, doesn't it? You know, the church for years has fought over this idea of orthodoxy. So, what is the right teaching of Scripture? How do we talk about God correctly? I mean, Baptists aren't immune from these controversies. We had one of the the best sending organization for missionaries that the world had seen in modern times. And yet, due to these discussions over orthodoxy, we started chipping away at ourselves. Some pointing fingers and said, oh, if you don't sign this document, you're not one of us anymore. But hey, that's water under the bridge. So orthodoxy is important. Some have leaned so much in their religious career that orthodoxy has become the number one thing. And the right understanding of Scripture is important. But I think we make things in a church too complicated. Jesus died for you while you were yet a sinner. Those who believe in Christ shall not perish. Those who follow Christ are his disciples. It's not all that complicated, is it? It's the right understanding. Do you have Jesus? Yes. Do you follow Jesus? Yes. What does following Jesus look like? Well, that comes to the next part. Orthopraxy. That means right actions. So if your preacher came up every week and shared a word that was very orthodox, correct teachings, and did all this kind of stuff, But yet, when he walked out the door, he also had a gambling parlor across the street, and he started running. How long would he be your preacher? I'm wondering, because that might be a good way to generate some income. But, I mean, we expect our leaders to not only understand the teachings of Scripture, but also live in a way that mirrors that image. And so when we look at this book, five chapters long, it is one of those books that is not hard to understand. In the words of Mark Twain, it's not the verses of Scripture that I don't understand that bother me. It's the ones that I do. And what he meant by this is the parts of Scripture that are hard to grasp and do. If you have a little bit extra, the book of James says, give it to those who don't. That's a simple equation. If you have extra resources, share them with someone who doesn't. But yet in reality, it's really hard. And so for this early church, this uh, tribes of the dispersion, are the tribes scattered among the nations, as the opening lines say, James is writing a pastoral letter to encourage them, to encourage them to live in a life worthy of Christ. And so during this time period, roughly at any point, 10% of the population was experienced extreme poverty or sickness. Now this was the kind of poverty that if someone didn't give you a loaf of bread, you were going to literally starve to death. Poverty. Not, oh, you'll be hungry that day, because they were already hungry. This was the kind of poverty where if there wasn't a generous donor, you were going to die. I don't know anyone in this country today that suffers from that kind of poverty. Now, there are those who suffer from mistakes that they have made and put themselves in this situation. It's like I was reading a Facebook post from a youth minister in our area. Not ours, so I'm not going to put you in on this one. But another one. It says, everything happens for a reason. It says, sometimes that reason is you're stupid and make bad choices. That's simple logic, it's true. Everything does happen for a reason and sometimes it's because you made the mistake. You have to own up to your mistakes that you've made. If bad things are happening to you, you need to sit back and reflect, why are these bad things happening to you? Sometimes it is out of your hand, but if we are truly honest with ourselves it's because we have made dumb decisions with our life choices. We've been given this perfect law, of liberty. This words of Scripture. We have heard them taught. We know the right way to understand Scripture, but when it comes to our actions, we leave these doors and act like we've never heard it before. James says, You are like a person who once takes a selfie. Looking on the internet, you do not recognize your own picture. He uses mirrors, but we have technology, right? So who yet? Who among us, when we're looking through a photo album or a newspaper and see ourselves, don't recognize who we are? For this is what he says. Those who hear the perfect law, the law fulfilled in the words of Christ, the Christ the perfecter of the law, it's not about doing to earn God's grace, but it is God's grace who gives you the right to do in God's way. Don't get it misunderstood, because James is not contradicting Paul in any bit. But we want to hear what we want to hear. And if you hear that grace is a salvation-free card, you know, it's like it gets me out of jail, those kind of things, if you played Monopoly, that all I have to do is with my mouth say the words, and it is true. But with your mouth saying the words becomes an action. It is in your actions that you become a follower And as you are followed, you will grow into your salvation. And one point in the future, when you either cross over, when Christ returns and collects his bridegroom, or when you die and move to heaven, you will become perfected. But it is always about getting closer and closer to God's commands. It is about growing perfect in our knowledge. So I have to ask you, what is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Think about it. There are some really smart people. I have met people who've had multiple PhDs. They know a lot of things, a lot of facts about their particular field. But yet they live at home with their mama. (laughs) Have you met any of these people? They know a lot of stuff, but they don't know what to do with that stuff. They don't know how to make a living and earn income. They don't know what to do with all this knowledge. Now, wisdom, on the other hand, is the ability to process this knowledge and make a difference. It could be that you find gainful employment and make an honest living. It could be simple, knowing the simple truths of the gospel and trying to live the best way you can. So there's many of us today who probably haven't read every single page or every single word of the Bible. Even though we are Baptists, we are people of the book, and we pride ourselves on knowing the Bible and its teachings, there's probably some of us who don't know it as we should. I'd encourage you to learn a little more. But it's not about the parts you have not learned yet. It's the parts that you do know that should give you problems. Because the fact is, the gospel was for us while we were still sinners. If you have found Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, it clearly says you need to share that gospel message with others. How do we share that message? By our speech. But did you know our actions speak a lot louder than our words? James will later say, if someone comes to you in need, and you pray for them and wish them well, but yet you never take care of your need, you have missed the point. So it's not a part, the parts of Scripture that we don't understand that give us problems. But it is in the parts that we do, and we don't do them. I challenge you this week over spring break. Most of you say, well, I don't have spring break. Well, it's still spring break, so that's going to be my challenge nonetheless. Read this little book. It's one of those that it doesn't have these giant theological issues to concern yourself with. They're there, and you can dwell on them, and you could write books and novels and all that people have. But it's one of these books that we read, and it's pretty plain. You know, you always want to tell the preacher, just give it to me straight. This book will. It will talk about favoritism. It talks about speaking in love, serving the poor, being wholly devoted to God. Not just on Sundays or Wednesday nights or when you see another church member in the store. But about your whole life being devoted to Christ. It's about how do we respond when we are suffering, when we're sick. When we face oppression, what does faith really look like? How do we pray? Trials and tribulation. These are all part of it. They're easy to understand, but very hard to digest. So I'm giving you a gift today. I'm going to let you out a little early. So you get a head start on this. You're probably thinking, wow, he's almost done. This is our spring break today. So you're going to get home. You're going to have a few minutes to get the things on the stove. Well, while you have that extra time, read this book. It won't take long. We're going to look at it for the next two Sundays. It will challenge you because it talks about orthodoxy with orthopraxy the way it should be. It's about a right understanding of the law. Because when Jesus came, he didn't say, I'm doing away with it. But he said, not one jot or tittle, or depending on your translation, dot or dash, of this law will pass away. He didn't come to replace it, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But he serves a holy God with a holy mission. And he calls sinners who are apart into a relationship with him. And once we have that relationship, we are to stoke up the flames. We are to build on it. We are to grow closer in both our understanding and our actions. It's kind of like your loved ones. If you just knew their, know, knew their name and all the facts about them, it does not show a loving relationship. There are kids in elementary school who can name every fact statistic about a favorite ball player but yet they do not know them personally if you want to know our Lord personally it's about hearing and understanding the truths but about acting out with your life without both knowledge and understanding and also practice we will never fully understand this perfect law of liberty So please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to come into your house. Lord, I ask that you challenge each and every one of us. Challenge us to study your word, but not just for the knowledge of what your word teaches, but for the witness and the instructions on how we are to live. The way that you have called us to live, the way that you have created us to be. With our strengths, with our talents, with our minds, lead us into your way so that we may truly be your followers. It is in your name we pray. Amen.